Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Final Word on Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. It's January 19th. I'm your host, Gabriella Silva-Ponte. Today, we'll be covering stories from a fire in Toronto that killed one, to a lesson about insurance with a personal injury lawyer, to the Harbourfront Centre's Future Matters exhibit. As always, let's first take a look at today's top news, as reported by Sharanki Kalantharasa. It is Friday, January 19th, and I'm your host, Sharanki Kalantharasa, reporting for Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. And here are our top stories from today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau visits Nunavut to take part in the biggest land transfer in Canadian history. A fire in a Toronto home leaves one dead. Uniqlo sues Sheen over allegedly copying their Mary Poppins bag. And then we will hear Rogine with their segment, Good News. So let's get into it. For our first headline, Justin Trudeau visits none of it to take part in the biggest land transfer in history. On Thursday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Nunavut Premier PJ Akiagut finalized the Nunavut Lands and Resources Devolution Agreement. According to Global News, the agreement focuses on moving powers regarding public land, non-renewable resources, and waters away from the federal government. The 239-page document outlined how the Nunavut government will now have control over their own resources and not the federal government. According to CBC News, the agreement will officially come into effect on April 1st, but parties will have till April of 2027 to finish all that is required. As of now, the federal government makes all the decisions with regards to resource development, including mines, oil, and gas. And according to many, devolution will change this while allowing the territory the right to make more decisions of their own. For the second headline, a fire in Toronto, rooming home, leaves one dead. Firefighters were called to a home in Leslieville before 5.30 a.m. on Thursday regarding a fire on the second floor of the home. According to CP24, an individual was found in the room showing no serious signs. However, shortly later, they were pronounced dead by paramedics. Fire Chief Matthew Pegg, who spoke to CP24, said that the rooming house contained up to seven residents. The residents allegedly raised the concern that the fire alarm may not have been properly functional on the residents. 
Peg told CP24 that investigations will be made in order to find out the exact cause of the fire as well as whether the home followed the Ontario Fire Code with proper smoke alarms in place. If not, action will be taken. For those whose shelter spaces were impacted by the fire, a TTC shelter bus was brought to the scene to keep them warm. And for our last headline, Uniqlo sues Sheen over allegedly copying the Mary Poppins bag. The well-known Japan-found retail store that has locations all over the world, Uniqlo, sued Sheen, a well-known online retailer found in China but now based in Singapore. The lawsuit was filed for the reason that Sheen's round-shaped shoulder bag looked too similar to Uniqlo's Mary Poppins bag and is allegedly of, quote, inferior quality. Uniqlo mentioned that the demanding damages of this alleged copy bag that Sheen created added up to around 160 million yen, or 1.1 million U.S. dollars. That was it for today's news, and now let's take a quick look at the weather. Today, it's pretty cold with temperatures going down to negative 6 degrees Celsius, but precipitation rates remain at zero. The weather is described as partly cloudy. Make sure to dress up accordingly to the weather and bundle up as temperatures are hitting negatives this week. On Saturday, temperatures will be going down 2 degrees to a total of negative 8 degrees Celsius, with a slight chance of precipitation at 5%. Saturday seems to be more cloudier than Friday and colder than Friday, so make sure you're bundled up. On Sunday, however, we can expect temperatures to rise to negative 2 degrees Celsius, with the weather being described as clear with periodic clouds, but for the most part, the sun is expected to show up. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. It is Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Sharinki Kalaitharasa. Thanks for listening. Again, that was Sharinki Kalaitharasa. Thanks, Sharinki. approximately 160,000 car accidents reported in Canada every year? And those are just the reported ones. I spoke with personal injury lawyer and entrepreneur Jasmine Dea about this commonality. Um, car accidents are very common. There's a lot of drivers on the road, although generationally I'm noticing that uh, people in their younger years aren't rushing off to get driver's license as much as we were back in the day because you now have all these wonderful apps and better uh, better trans- a transportation system than we did. So uh, car accidents are still very common. 
There are concerns surrounding getting into a car accident while in a rideshare app vehicle. Dea spoke about that. So I don't know if I can speak to how it raises the number. Uh, the bigger concern with rideshare apps is that you are putting your life in the hands of another individual. And because rideshare apps are relatively new, uh, they've only just come about in the in the recent years. There was concern about the type of training that an individual would have and the background checks that would be performed. So you have concern from a safety and security point, uh, perspective as a passenger, as well as, well, what kind of training does this person have? What's their driving record history? Um, do they have access to insurance? Have they done everything necessary to ensure the safety of their passengers? So while we don't have statistics necessarily on whether there's an increase or decrease in the number of accidents, uh, there's certainly an increase in heightened awareness about issues that could be created as a result of rideshare apps. But luckily, Dea says some new advances surrounding this mitigate the risks. So thankfully, uh, we now have the regulatory board in Ontario overseeing uh, insurers and rideshare, car share, and delivery services, they have ensured that there is available insurance. So when these apps first started, we, there was no specific insurance policy for these apps. And so by getting into a vehicle, uh, if they just had personal insurance on the vehicle, you may have difficulty if there's an accident in terms of accessing their insurance. Now, Uber, Lyft, um, even the uh, the car share apps, um, all of them now have tailored products. So there is specific insurance companies for these apps to use. And it is mandatory if they are driving for these companies that they carry that type of insurance. Um, so that's definitely new and it's definitely helpful for individuals. Uh, so for example, Lyft, uh, Lyft drivers are required to carry a policy of insurance through Aviva Insurance. Um, they've got Easy Ride has Northbridge insurance. Those are for rideshare. Uber uses economical insurance. But as I said, these policies are catered specifically for these apps to use. And that means that the people, the passengers getting into these vehicles are now protected. They now have access to insurance. She also spoke about some of the most common injuries due to car accidents. Um, again, I don't think we have a statistic to tell us how many people get injured in uh, from a car accident. However, um, there are so many different types of injuries, right? There's soft tissue injuries. Uh, so if you have um, whiplash, for example, you may have an accident and not notice anything. They say usually whiplash, you can feel about 24 to 48 hours after the accident, and you'll feel that severe pain. Some people can't even move because of the pain, which is, it's interesting because when that hit happens, sometimes you don't feel anything. And it's a couple of days later where suddenly you can't move because your neck pain is so bad. Um, but hopefully those minor injuries after some treatment will resolve. Um, then you can have a little bit uh, more significant injury, unfortunately, whether it's a fracture, whether it's an airbag that deployed that uh, caused some damage on your face sometimes. Um, there are even more serious injuries, obviously, such as a brain injury or even amputations caused by motor vehicle accidents. Uh, that's one of the reasons we have all the laws in place that we do, such as wearing seatbelts. It's not just an inconvenience, it's because 
the government is trying to protect individuals from sustaining injury or at least minimizing injury caused by car accidents. But don't fret. Dea gave some suggestions of what to do if someone is in a car accident. So one of the reasons that there are specific insurance companies for each app is because it makes it much easier for the passenger or the user of these apps to know where to go. Because if if you don't have one insurance company, um, for Uber, for example, who would you contact? Right now, you can go online and know that Uber is insured by Economical Mutual Insurance. So you would notify Economical that you were involved in a motor vehicle accident while you were a passenger of an Uber ride. And you would also notify your own insurance company if you have access to insurance company of the accident. Uh, The reason is because in Ontario, we have what is called a no-fault scheme. That means it doesn't matter who is at fault, everyone in Ontario that's involved in a motor vehicle accident, commonly known as a car accident, is entitled to get benefits. So you are entitled to get benefits for treatment. So if you need chiro, massage, physiotherapy, and you're involved in an accident, then yes, you can get that covered. Most individuals will find themselves in the minor injury guideline and you'll have access to $3,500 for treatment. If you have lost income, you'll have access to what we call income replacement benefit. Um, Now you have to fill in paperwork with the insurance company. You can do that directly with the insurance company or you can hire a law firm a personal injury lawyer or a paralegal to assist you with the paperwork and get the ball rolling on your claim. Um, Just one thing, I talked about accident benefits. So I mentioned that everyone in Ontario is entitled to accident benefits. There's another component. If you're not at fault for a car accident, if you're a pedestrian or you are a passenger or you are a driver who is not at fault for an accident, you may have the ability to sue the at-fault driver if your injuries are permanent and serious. And again, you'd want to consult with a lawyer to ensure that you know your rights and that you can pursue whatever is necessary in order to get you back to where you were before this accident as best as possible. We know lots of students commute into Toronto Metropolitan University and some of them do so with rideshare apps. So, if you luckily haven't been in a car accident yet and want to avoid being in trouble just in case it happens, Daya shared some recommendations. My recommendation is to definitely use apps that are reputable and well-known. So Uber, Lyft, and and any of the others that are well-known that are legitimate companies. One of the things we're seeing in various parts of Ontario, because the cost of living has increased so much and inflation has made things very expensive, people are trying to find ways to save money. And while that's understandable, it can be problematic. And what I mean by that is that sometimes um, people are advertising that they will take you wherever you need to go. Uh, There's also WhatsApp group chats that have been created by individuals offering transportation services to individuals. Those are not regulated service providers. And while it may cost a little bit less than taking uh, a Lyft or an Uber, the problem is those individuals may not have proper insurance, which means that you could be left without access to insurance if you have a car accident and need various forms of treatment. Um, You could also have issues with safety and security. I mean, does this person have a criminal record? Are Are they wanted by the police? Any of these things could be the truth. And these days in Toronto, 
as you know, they're calling it Gotham City. There's lots of stuff happening if you want to be uh, as safe as possible. Um, the other issue is, what is their driving history? I mean, if you have hired someone, generally you don't ask to see their driver's license and insurance and registration. However, um, you're taking that risk, right? Like if you have an app, that homework has already been done. It's already been verified that they're able to provide the services that they're offering. Whereas if you're using a stranger from a group chat or someone recommended it to you, then you don't have that uh, preventative measure in place to provide you with safety and security. Finally, local journalist Owen Thompson interviewed one of the contributing artists for Design TO's art exhibition. The exhibition is entitled Future Matters and is taking place at Harborfront Center. One of the contributing artists is Cole Swanson. Here's Owen with more on that. This is Owen Thompson with the Local Journalism Initiative. Design TO's exhibition kicks off on January 19th with Future Matters at the Harborfront Center. Okay, so to start out, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Cole Swanson. I'm a contemporary Toronto-based artist, um, and I am one of the participating artists in the Future Matters exhibition, which is the headline exhibition of Design TO, and it is at Harborfront Centre here in Toronto. So how long have you been in the art space in Toronto? Uh, I guess I've been working for about 20 years uh, as an artist, and I've lived in Toronto for about 15 of those years. So I, I suppose I started to build a relationship with the city uh, about 15 years ago. I had I had been training and, and working abroad for a while. So uh, Toronto's basically, I think, the first city that I would call my my actual home. So yeah, build a home here, build a career here. And what art do you typically specialize in? Well, I started as a painter. Uh, I was training actually at the University of Guelph in painting and drawing. And uh, I did a little bit of work over the years, actually quite a bit of work in India, studying materials and techniques, uh, particularly in miniature painting and fresco. Uh, fresco is a, a kind of old, it's often associated with Italian art, but fresco is the old practice of using natural pigments with plaster. So I, I suppose that entry into painting would would make me seem like a painter, but uh, it was actually the material that I was working with in those earlier projects that pushed me toward a more studied engagement with materials and the natural sources from which they emerge. Uh, so I guess now I would say that I'm I'm more of an environmental artist or what some people might call an eco artist in the sense that most of my work seems to be connecting with different ecological agents. Um, and I guess materials brought me there. So that means that I'm not just making paintings so much anymore. I'm doing lots of mixed media works or installations, usually in conversation with some sort of emergent ecology. From my understanding, eco art is producing stuff out of natural elements and natural or things that are just kind of in the environment itself. So could you just go into a bit more of a, I guess, a breakdown of what exactly is eco art to you? 
Yeah, I think eco art is sort of a it's it's kind of a newer term. It's one of several terms that people have used in the area of environmental arts. Eco art, I guess, is shorthand for ecology, ecological art. For me, you know, it might manifest as a relationship with materials and the you know biotic or abiotic assemblages from which material materials are produced. But I think more largely speaking, eco art would refer to the kinds of ecological networks that exist in the world today and how, as an artist, we have an opportunity to engage with such networks. So it could be anything from, you know, animal colonies or, or emergent plant ecologies. Uh, but oftentimes, I, I think an interesting eco-art practice is one that looks at the relationships rather than the individual ecological agents themselves. So I'm really interested in, in those kinds of environmental networks that you know, are always changing and shifting in the world today. And a place like Toronto is an interesting place to build a practice like that, because we sort of think of Toronto as this intensifying urban space, somehow psychically divorced from nature. But that's a kind of a settler colonial worldview that that has typically positioned humans as being very separate from the natural world. Um, so what I what for me, this kind of ecological art practice is one that looks to dissolve those boundaries a little bit more and to think about our very complex relations with these so-called natural agents. And I guess in that sense, eco-art or any of these environmental arts practices is about challenging, you know, very fixed notions of what the natural world is or what the human world is. Uh, so the art practice is a way of, of destabilizing some of those boundaries. And before this summer, is exhibition is going till around April, May. Uh, mm -hmm. is the Harborfront Future Matters, which you have made a art contribution towards. Yeah, it's an excellent uh, exhibition in the sense that it's the kickoff exhibition for Design TO. And, and as, as we've been talking about, it's, it seems to be really focused on materials. As of this recording, it, or it currently hasn't started. It starts on January 19th. What is your contribution to this exhibition? So I'm I I just closed an exhibition at uh, in Unionville at the at the Varley Art Gallery of Markham, and so this is a sort of second iteration of a project that has brought me into close relation with my own neighborhood ecology. So the piece that I am showing at Future Matters is based on an eight month process of getting to know the West Toronto Rail Path, which is this uh, originally kind of an accidental wilderness along uh, the rail corridor here in the Junction Triangle, which was sort of revitalized or, or uh, some attempts have been made to create a kind of like native species uh, walking path. But because of increasing pressures through gentrification and rail corridor expansion, the West Toronto Rail Path is being systematically dismantled. So. It was really painful uh, as somebody who's built a relationship with this bizarre ecology that I would I would watch all of the trees and all of the plants be cut down over over the course of the, the eight month period. So my project sort of uh, looked at it started it actually started with one grove of trees, one grove of sumac trees. Um, so staghorn sumac is a native species. We see it all, all over the place here, and it especially likes to grow in areas like rail corridors. But alongside plants like sumacs, which we like, there are a number of plants and animals that we don't like. So invasive species like dog strangling vine and grove snails, things like that. So as you know, as I was anticipating watching all of this stuff being cut down, I used it as an opportunity to start to look really, really closely at what was actually growing there. So 
Because of my interest in materials, I documented and rendered seven different pigments from various sources that were growing along the rail path in order to create a kind of memorial artwork. So the piece that I have in Future Matters uh, shows this, the process work of, of capturing these, these seven different colors from nature, which include everything from like berry-based pigments to you know earth samples that were dug up from construction crews or snail shells that are ground down into a kind of fugitive color. And from these seven colors, I have attempted to sort of bring back to life this ecology that has been disappearing or disappeared in some cases. So, so the work is, it's sort of a combination. It's like a mixed media installation that includes videos and process, but it also includes like a large scale mural piece with things like field studies and specimens all kind of integrated together into this sort of elegiacal, you know, honorific piece that, that, you know, celebrates a fairly humble subject, or at least what we might think of as a humble subject, which is this, you know, grove of plants on a wayward path. When it comes to the, these pigments and the sourcing of it, if you could break down where these, these seven pigments have come from, as you said, this is material and where it comes from is very important. And with these pigments, you had to make them yourself. So for the people that don't know how pigments are made, what materials were you sourcing and what was the process of making those pigments? Sure. There's So it was a really unlikely um, environment to work from because, of course, when I decided that I wanted to study this space, I didn't really have any idea of what pigments I would encounter. But because of my training in miniature painting, where all of the pigments that we use were are harvested from nature, I did have a little bit of knowledge of how I might go about extracting certain kinds of colors. So they're sort of in different groups. <clears throat> the The most obvious are the sort of fall berry color. So sumac, staghorn sumacs produce these really fuzzy red droops. The droops are named for the, the fruits and they last all winter. So you'll see them, they have this sort of like upward turned shrubby bush with these bright, the females produce these bright red droops that feed squirrels and, and birds throughout the winter season. Also Virginia creeper, which is a native species, was intentionally planted along the rail path and it grows like a vine. So it almost produces these grape-like fruits. It was fairly easy to extract pigments from them because with berries, uh, they produce an organic pigment. There are different pigment types, but just simply mashing or boiling them for a while can extract the pigment and you can bind it with something like a gum arabic, which is a tree sap that you can use to kind of thicken the mixture. But some of the other um, colors involve totally different processes. So one of them, uh, one grouping of colors is sort of like a soil-based uh, process, which is more similar to how a miniature painter might make their color. Um, so when the construction crews started to dig up the rail path, they were digging up this bright yellow soil that was rich with a, a kind of ochre-based pigment. So in that case, you know, you have to filter the pigment out from the soil, and it takes a lot of labor. It's like a process of grinding it into a fine powder, sieving it, and then bathing it in water and kind of filtering it multiple times in order to separate those tiny little pigment molecules from the actual soil itself. So I produced a couple of those. I, I made charcoal from the branches of, of sumac trees. For some reason, people walking along the rail path seem to love to take not everybody, but some villainous agents seem to like to break off branches from these trees for no reason. So, you know, you'd find these sort of like busted up saplings and things. And so um, I decided to take them 
strip the bark off, and then carbonize them in the fireplace at my studio. If you'd like to hear more about Cole Swanson and how he likes to create his art, Owen Thompson has his own show with the Local Journalism Initiative. Coincidentally, that plays right after this show, so have a listen and you'll be able to hear a little bit more. That's our show. You've been listening to The Final Word on Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Gabriela Silvaponte. This episode was put together by myself, Owen Thompson, and Sharanki Kalantharasa. Thank you for listening live, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>